Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you will speak to us in your word by your Holy Spirit. Speak to our minds, speak to our hearts and our wills that we can submit ourselves to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently I read a, in the news about um, something that they put up in Trafalgar Square in London. Okay, I don't know whether you've ever been there. They put up a, a hedge maze, if you know what that is. Maybe I'll show you a, a picture of what it looks like from the inside. Okay. So, basically, I, I don't know whether you've ever been in this kind of mazes before, Okay, where it's surrounded by hedges, but you walk in and you, you go inside and you try to find the other way out. Okay. Now, I haven't been in this one, I've been in other ones, and I tell you, it's not fun when you're in the middle of it, stuck, and you have no idea how to get out. Okay? Now, if you are inside, you can't see the twists and turns. You can't see the way out. But if you had a bird's eye view, that would be very different, right? you immediately be able to work out how to get out. So I'll show you the next slide. So if you look from the top, it's easy to know how to get out, right? Okay, you can work it out very quickly. Now, what's this all about? Well, basically, life is all about having the right perspective. Life is like that. See, there are two ways to view life in this world. Now, one perspective, some people say, there is no God. People say, you know, we don't see God, we don't hear God, we don't find any evidence of God. So, life is, you know, all about me. See, I can do whatever I want, I can live life my own way. So, this perspective focuses only on what is immediately in front of us, right? It doesn't think beyond death. So I can just think about making the most of life now as it is. And in fact, most people in Singapore think like that. Life is about me, about my life, about, you know, what I want. But there is another perspective, a a, a heavenly, a higher perspective, and that is a Christian view of the world. See, the Christian view says that not everything is as it seems. There is a God, even though we can't see Him. He made us. And God hasn't left us to guess what He's like, but God gave us His words. And God came as a man to show us and to tell us about Himself. This God is the God who made us and He expects something of us. And we know that in this view, it says life does not end at death. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. There is heaven and hell to come. And because of that, how we live today must not be to enjoy the present, but to secure our future. Two very different views on life. And today's passage, Psalm 2, is about two perspectives on life. The earthly perspective and the heavenly perspective. So what is life like from the earth's point of view? Well, let's turn to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, The next uh, one, verses 1 to 3, let me read this to you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So this psalm starts by telling us the perspective of earth. And the mood is dark and turbulent, there is chaos, there is confusion, if he sends a bit of fear. See, we, we think of 
these kings and these generals all kind of hurriedly making strategies and plotting together against God and huge armies assembling, marching, taking their stand against God. It's a bit like uh, when you watch uh, Lord of the Rings, I don't know whether you've seen that show, most of you probably have. You get these huge armies assembling and taking their stand against the good guys. That's what, that's what this is talking about. And not only are they conspiring against God, they're conspiring against God's anointed one, it says. Now, who is this anointed one? The anointed one in the Hebrew, the word for it is Mashiach, which means Messiah in English. See, anointed one means God's chosen king. In the past, God chose kings by anointing them with oil. And so God's anointed one is the one that God has chosen to be his king. These nations are plotting against God and his appointed king. And what are they trying to do? What are they plotting? Well, they are planning a military coup against God, a revolution. See, they want to overthrow God's rule over them. They want complete freedom from God. They don't want God to tell them what to do. They want to do their own thing. They want to run life their way. And they want to run the world their way. Now, you know, I like to read history when I have a bit of spare time. And reading history is not all about reading facts and dates and details. It's about understanding movements. It's about understanding why things happen and how they shape our world today. Now, Psalm 2 doesn't tell us any historical facts or dates or details, but it does tell us what is behind a lot of history. You see, why, does, why, why has things happened in our world the way they've happened in the last several hundred thousand years? Well, much of history can be summed up in people wanting to rebel against God. And that explains a lot of history. Now, this is still happening today. Now, how do people today conspire against God? Well, two ways. They have contempt towards God and they show indifference to God. Now, how do people show contempt to God? How do nations and countries and communities do that? Well, firstly, they disobey God's commands. They kill. They make war out of hatred and greed. They unjustly exploit. And also, they rebel against God by suppressing and oppressing the people of God, Christians, the church. See, in Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders in Jerusalem they were you know, trying to shut up the Christian apostles. They told them, I don't want you to, you know, to say any more about Jesus. And after that, when the apostles gathered together, here, this is what they prayed. In Acts chapter 2, they prayed this. They said, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. See, the apostles recognize that Psalm 2 is about when people gather together to oppose Jesus and oppose his people. That's exactly what they are doing. These people who oppress Christians are showing contempt for Jesus and trying to throw off God's rule. And that's still happening today. 
See, there are governments which try to outlaw Christianity, to clamp down on people spreading the gospel. They may uh, officially persecute Christians, or perhaps they just turn a blind eye when other people burn churches or discriminate against Christians or torture and rape and kill Christians. Even in this week's news, we heard about the Batak Christian Church in Indonesia, where people were stabbed and beaten up on their way to church. And we think of many other countries where there is persecution. China, India, Middle East, lots of places. Now, there are some countries which do not physically persecute Christians, but nonetheless, there is still persecution. There is still people trying to throw off God's rule. Say, in Western secular countries, in the UK, people have lost their jobs for telling people at work about their Christian faith. People have lost their jobs for wearing a cross around their necks to work. Or sometimes governments pass uh, laws which go against God's commands. So in the US, they're trying to legalize homosexual relationships and as marriage. And in other countries, people try to shut down Christian associations in schools, in universities. Now, if you feel that all this has got nothing to do with you, it doesn't involve you in any way, well, it's not just nations and governments that try to rebel against God. See, ordinary people everywhere on the street rebel against God. They show God contempt. Let me give you some examples of what people say. In the 18th century, there was a French thinker called Voltaire. He said, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. And um, Nietzsche is a German philosopher who said, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one enormous and innermost perversion, the one great instinct of revenge, for which no means are too venomous, too underhand, too underground and too petty. I call it the one immortal blemish of mankind. These are the things that people say against Christianity. Or perhaps a more familiar uh, name for us in the 21st century, Richard Dawkins, well-known biologist from Oxford University, who wrote this book called The God Delusion. And in, in his book, he said this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow, okay. And also, it's not just the Richard Dawkins of this world, the philosophers and thinkers who mock God to his face. People, like I say, people on the streets do that too. And once in a while, I like to read uh, online newspaper articles from around the world, Australia and US. And in those countries, there's, you know, people like to comment on the articles. And what you'll find, whenever there's a religion article, something about Christianity, you can bet on it that there will be lots and lots of uh, comments ridiculing Christians and ridiculing Christianity after that. Now you might say, well, I'm not like that. I don't do that. I don't kill people. I don't persecute Christians. No, if people want to believe in God, let them do so. You know, I leave them alone. I just get on with my own life. I'm not rebelling against God. I don't think He exists. And therefore, you know, I just, He's not relevant to my life. I can't be bothered really about God in my life. He's not on my radar. Now, that is also a way of rebelling against God. 
See, being indifferent to God is rebelling against Him. You ignore God in your life. No, you don't give Him a second thought. You live as though He doesn't exist. Well, let me tell you, God says you are one of those people who are assembling against God. You are plotting against Him. You are hostile towards Him and trying to throw Him off. Verse 1 asks, Why? Why? Why do nations and peoples try to rebel against God? It says it's all in vain. They are plotting in vain. See, it's so ridiculous, so absurd, so ludicrous. It's so pointless. Why is it so pointless? Well, let's look at the next few verses. Verses 4 to 6. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, now the camera has shifted up from earth to heaven. And now we have the perspective of heaven. We are in the control room of the universe where God sits on the throne. See, on earth it seems like God has lost his power. On earth it seems like he doesn't exist. Human beings have taken over. They can defy him to his face. But what is happening on earth is only a mirage. It's not reality. Reality is when the curtains of heaven are peeled back and we can actually see what is going on. And in heaven there is no confusion. There is no turmoil, no upheaval. Everything is calm. Everything is orderly. And God is perfectly in control of everything. Everything is happening according to His plan. And no matter what goes on on earth, nothing faces God. See, He has the last laugh. When people mock Him, when they ridicule Him and scorn Him, He laughs back at them. God is not mocked. See, those people, they don't know who they are taking on. They are ridiculing the great God who made the universe, who made all those people, and who determines everything that happens. They are like little ants running around, you know, puny ants, shaking their fists in God's face, and God can... See, God doesn't stop by just laughing at them. It's not just a joke. God says, it says here that God rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them. In his wrath, God is furious. God is very angry because they have insulted him. And God has every right to be angry because he is God. He is the creator of everything. He made them. He gave them their life, their breath, their food, their drink, their houses, their earth to live on, their bodies. He gave them everything that they have. And they should. Therefore, Serve God. They should seek God. They should worship God. They should thank God. Because they depend on God for every minute that they exist. So God is angry when people rebel against Him, whether they oppose Him to His face or whether they just ignore Him. Either way, they are refusing to accept God's rule over their lives. And so what does God say? He says in verse 6, I have installed my king. On Zion, my holy hill. Now Zion is the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built. 
So Zion often refers to Jerusalem or refers to the place where God rules from, the temple the, uh, in Jerusalem. And who is this king that God has put in Zion? Well, let's look at verses 7 to 9. Verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, obviously, God is not the one who is speaking here. Because it's reporting something that God said to him. It's the anointed one, the king in Zion, who is speaking now. He says, let me tell you what the Lord has decreed or commanded. God said to me, Today you are my son and I have become your father. Now what is this all about? See, now in order to understand this, we have to understand a bit of the history in the Old Testament. When did God ever say to somebody, You are my son and I am your father? Well, let's turn to, or you can look on the screen, Second Samuel chapter 7. And in this chapter, God promises to King David something. And let's read from verse 11. The Lord, this is God's promise to David through the prophet Nathan. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Notice that the promise is given to David, but it's not given for David. It's not about him. It's about his offspring. It's for his descendants. Basically, God promises to make David's descendants kings who will rule forever. God says, I will build a house for your name. I will establish your, your offspring's rule forever. And in verse 14, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. In other words, I will treat him just like my own son. I will adopt him. And if he does something wrong, I won't treat him like what I did with Saul. You see, when Saul did something wrong, what did God do? God says, no longer will you be king. None of your descendants will ever be king. But when David's descendants do wrong, God says, I will punish you, but I will not take the kingship away from your family. A king from David will always sit on the throne and rule forever. That is God's promise. Now the people of Israel waited for this promise to be fulfilled. So the next king after David was his son, Solomon. Now Solomon did seem to partially fulfill this promise. He built a house, he built a temple for God. But he sinned against God. And not just him, the next king after him, and the next king after him, and the next king, all of them were sinners and were flawed kings. And none of them from Solomon down to the very last king, none of them ruled the kingdom forever like God promised. In fact, the, king, the kingly line was cut off when the Israelites were exiled 
to Babylon. And after that, there was no longer any king of Israel to this very day. Where is God's promise? Has God, will he keep his promise? Well, 400 years after the exile, 400 years after David's time, sorry, Jerusalem was destroyed, there was the exile. And where is this anointed one? Where is this king? Where is his son? Well, God hasn't forgotten his promise. Many years, hundreds of years later, this is what John the Baptist saw when he baptized the man Jesus. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist saw, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The one who really fulfills God's promise to David is Jesus. See, none of those kings of Israel fit the bill perfectly. Maybe they fulfilled it partially. But Jesus is ultimately the one that God gave the promise about. The promise is about Jesus. He is David's greatest son, and he is the one whose throne and kingdom will last forever. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the King, the Son. Now you might wonder, why does God say to Jesus, Today I will become your father and you are my son. Why today? Why not from eternity? Isn't, God, isn't Jesus God's son from eternity? Well, yes, we know that is true. Jesus is God's son from eternity. We know that from elsewhere in the Bible. But here when, Jesus, uh, when God says, You are my son today, he's talking about appointing him as son to the position of son, crowning him as, uh, as the king. You see, the son is a title for the king. And Jesus will be given the, the privileges of son, the privilege of ruling over the entire universe. So from that point on, Jesus is going to step up from the background into the spotlight and he will start ruling the universe forever. Now from what point on? When, did Jesus, uh, when was Jesus appointed God's son? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 1. I'll just read to you. Paul starts the letter of Romans by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Jesus was Son. His Son even before his resurrection is what verse 3 says. He's a descendant of David. But at his resurrection, he was appointed to the position and title of being the Son of God. He was publicly appointed to this role of ruling over the whole universe. And we find the same thing in Acts, in Acts chapter 13. Now here Paul is preaching in a synagogue to the Jews. And he says this, We tell you the good news, 
What God promised our fathers, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. See, there's a link here between Jesus' resurrection and Psalm 2. Jesus' resurrection is the point at which the psalm, the second psalm, is fulfilled. And Jesus is appointed as God's son. See, before his resurrection, Jesus was son from all eternity, but he hadn't come into the full role that he should have as God's son. God's son is meant to rule. Jesus wasn't, wasn't ruling over the universe yet before his resurrection. He was a weak man on earth, a lowly man. But on his resurrection, he was raised up with power to be God's king, God's Messiah and God's son. And at that point, and forevermore, Jesus will rule all things. Coming back to Psalm 2, God says in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. What is the scope of Jesus' rule? Well, he will rule all nations to the ends of the earth. All this are his inheritance and are his possession. God gives Jesus a rule over everyone, everything. And how will he rule? With an iron scepter. Now, if you have an iron bar and you, it comes crashing down on a piece of pottery, you know which is going to win, right? It's not the pottery that will win, it's the iron bar. See, Jesus will dash to pieces all those who oppose him, all those who ignore him. Jesus is going to rule with complete power and authority. Nobody can escape his rule. He will destroy all of his enemies. Many people think of Jesus as a, a, a soft-hearted, kind fellow, you know, a guy with no backbone. He's the one who told us to turn the other cheek, right? So, well, he's all about love, he's all about forgiveness, and Jesus is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Now, we like this picture of Jesus because it's safe. It's not threatening to us at all. This is a Jesus that we can use for our own purposes. This is a Jesus that we can show contempt to, we can treat him with indifference. But that is a one-sided picture of Jesus. Now, in the Narnia stories, that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, you might have read them, you might have seen them on the movies. The lion Aslan represents Jesus, right? And this story keeps saying, Aslan is not a tame lion. Yes, he's a good and just and noble and kind king, but if you are his enemy, he will pounce on you and rip you to pieces. Now this tells us the other side of Jesus. Psalm 2 tells us Jesus is not somebody to be trifled with. No doubt he's not a cruel monster. He's not a tyrant. He's a good king. He's a just and loving ruler who rules for the good of his people. But if you are on the wrong side of Jesus, you will be dashed to pieces like pottery. You'll have something to, to worry about. You won't escape. So Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Son. 
is the one who from his resurrection on will rule the universe forever. What should we do? Verse 10 Therefore you kings, be wise, be warned you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, if Jesus is the Lord of the universe, if, he, if, he, if nobody can defeat God, if he will always win, what is the smart thing to do? Well, the wise thing to do is verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, the logical thing to do is to kiss the son. Verse 12. Now, in those days, if the king, if a great king had come to your country and conquered your, your country, then the king of your country had to go before this great king and lie flat on the ground with his face to the floor and kiss his feet. Now that is a posture of total surrender, unconditional surrender. And that is the attitude that we need to have to King Jesus. See, when we come face to face with Jesus, we realize that we have no right to rule over our own lives. We have no power to resist his rule. He must be the one who rules over everything in our lives. And we must tremble in fear before our God and our King. See, what does it mean that we have to fear God? Well, to fear God means realizing God is God and we are not God. See, it means to revere God, to show Him great awe, great reverence and fear because of who He is and to take Him into consideration in every part of our life, in how we live our lives, to be afraid of the consequences if we ignore Him. That is fearing God. And that is a very right and proper fear to have. If you walk in front of the President of Singapore, the Prime Minister, you need to have a right and proper attitude of respect and reverence. And fear of God is something like that, except magnified thousands of times more. If we don't have the right fear of God, we will have a wrong fear of God. See, we will end up with a terror and a dread of God's punishment. Now, have you ever had a really bad nightmare? And when you woke up, you're like, oh, thank God, that was just a nightmare. Or, you know, watching a, 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 a really ho- a horror movie, and at the end of it, you go, oh, luckily that was all just fiction, right? But this nightmare of being Jesus' enemy, you will never be able to wake up from. It's a terror. It's shocking. You're going about your life, you're doing things your way, and it says here, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you'll be destroyed in your way. You see, suddenly it will all be over, life will be over, and terror and destruction will be upon you. If you want to avoid God's fierce judgment, Submit to Jesus now, before it's too late, while you still have the chance. See, if we get on God's side now, God will forgive us our rebellion. He will 
wipe out all the wrong things that we have done in the past. Now, if God, if God is a just king, if God is so uh, stern, how can he just overlook all those things that we did wrong? Well, it's because of Jesus. God can only forgive us because Jesus took the punishment for us. God sent Jesus to die in our place instead of us so that we would not have to be punished. So as long as we put our trust in Jesus, we are safe. And as long as we serve the Lord with fear and trembling, we will not be punished. Instead, we will rejoice. Rejoice with trembling because God has shown us love and grace and mercy and blessing. He says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Instead of judgment, we will have blessing. And happy are all who find shelter in Jesus. So how do we apply all of this to ourselves? What does it mean for us? Well, the bottom line is there are only two ways to live. Either you are on God's side or you are on the world's side. Either you are for Jesus or you are against Jesus. You are opposing and ignoring Jesus. See, there is no middle ground. There is no neutral position. You can't sit on the fence and say, I haven't made up my mind. No, it's all very black and white. You are either for him or you are against him. If you say, I don't really think much about Jesus. I have nothing against him. He's a very good man. I just don't want to get involved with all this Jesus stuff. Well, then you are already involved. Because you have already received life from God, you have an obligation. You owe your life to God. You owe everything to God. So if you say, no, um, Jesus, stay out of my life, you are rebelling against God and you are trying to throw off his rule and go your own way. And that is the way of certain death. In Revelation 6, it tells us what will happen on the day of judgment. Revelation 6. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? If you don't submit to Jesus' rule. If you're not a Christian, you haven't given your life to Jesus, you have nowhere to hide. You can't escape. You can't run away from God. See, God is warning you today out of His kindness so that you can turn to Him now. You can't turn away from Him and not pay the price. God is giving you a chance today to realize your mistake, to turn back to Him, to accept Jesus as Savior and as Lord of your life. If you want to avoid punishment in hell, take refuge in Jesus. So it's up to you. Will you accept God's offer? Or will you turn it down? Now you might be, most of you here might be Christians, and thinking, well, I've already done this. I don't have to worry about this passage. No, this passage is speaking to you as well. It's got three things to say to you, at least. Firstly, we need to serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Don't take God for granted. He's not some Santa Claus up there in the sky, you know, always wanting to give you uh, good stuff. 
His only purpose is there to, you know, to, to bless you and do, uh, you know, give you what you want. He's not a vending machine. You can't just push a button and all the stuff that you want will come out. God is not like that. God is not a tap that you can just turn on whenever you want Him and turn off whenever you don't need Him. You see, it's not all about us. Many people think God is here to serve me and please me. You know, God will give me health, God will give me wealth, God will give me everything to make my life comfortable and make my heart content. Well, here's a news flash. It's not about us. It's about God. See, we are here to please Him and serve Him. It's not the other way around. So are you doing that? Is your life submitted to God as Master, as Lord in every detail? Or are you just living for yourself? And only once in a while, when you have a few scraps, you throw it to Jesus. If you don't bother much about God, and you're only living for yourself, then you are not for Him, you are against Him, like the rest of the world. So make a stand, decide whose side are you on. You can't become a Christian just by saying a prayer to accept Christ as Savior, and then not following Him as Lord. Now some people think, as long as I say the prayer 20 years ago of commitment, it doesn't matter how I live now, I will go to heaven. That's not true. That's a dangerous heresy. Now, I'm not saying that we must earn our salvation by doing good things because we are saved by God's grace, not by how we live. But I'm saying that if you truly have faith in Jesus and if you truly trust in Jesus, you have to show it in how you live your lives. You have to be loyal to Jesus. Being a Christian means committing yourselves to Jesus every day of your life to serve Him. And it means repenting of sin and trusting in Him every single day of your life. Look at Hebrews in chapter 3. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Yesterday's faith is not enough for today. You must repent and trust and obey today and every day. Don't be hardened, it says. Don't be deceived by sin. But hold on in faith and in obedience to Jesus to the very end and you will share in Christ. Secondly, if you're already a Christian, what you can learn from this psalm is take refuge in Jesus Christ. Now often, we don't see God in control in our lives or in our world. Now we hear about earthquakes, about fires and floods and oil spills and all kinds of things like that. And we see injustice, we see exploitation, we see corruption, we see lies everywhere around us. We hear about people's throats being slit just for a property deal gone wrong. We hear of robberies, kidnappings, rapes, murders. And even in our own lives, we do not escape pain. We have unhappiness in our relationships or maybe worries about our children or financial difficulties 
or we have worked too hard by our boss, we have health problems. See, whatever it may be, sometimes it seems like there is no end in sight to struggle and difficulty and hardship in life. The world is full of chaos, uncertainty, confusion. Where is God? Where is God? But as Christians, our God is a big God. Nations and rulers cannot outwit God, and people cannot thwart God or surprise God. He knows what he's doing. He's in control behind the scenes. Now, we do not know. He doesn't necessarily tell us what he's doing. We don't see it. We may not understand it, but we can believe and trust that God is working in all events to bring the whole universe under the control of Christ one day. So trust in him. Romans 8 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may not understand why or how, but trust God. Stand firm in your faith. Believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And look forward to that day when Jesus will break all his enemies and rule forever and bring joy and blessing and peace to this world. And lastly, if you are a Christian, Psalm 2 tells you, tell of the decree to the nations. Those people that you work with, you rub shoulders with every day, your family, your relatives, your friends, your soccer khakis, your diving khakis, see, they are going to face God's wrath and terror one day, soon. And you have the answer to their need. You alone know the message that can prevent this from happening. Go and tell them. Tell them about Jesus, the Son of God, the King, the Savior. Bring them to church. Bring them to evangelistic events. There's one next Saturday. Pray for them. Don't wait until it's too late. So as we conclude now, there are two perspectives on life. The people of earth say, there is no God. There's no need to worry about God. What you see is what you get. Just live your life. Don't worry about God. Don't worry about death. But God says, this life matters because there is a next life. I have given you enough warning. Either submit to Jesus willingly, or you will be forced to submit to him unwillingly one day. Which perspective will you accept? Are you for Jesus or against Jesus? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord God Almighty, we praise you for you are great in majesty and glory. You are enthroned above the heavens. The kings and peoples of this world are of no consequence to you and no one can oppose you and get away with it. You have appointed Jesus, your Son, as King and ruler over all things. Thank you that in his death and resurrection, you have offered us forgiveness and eternal blessing. In your great mercy, we pray that you will convict those who are still rebelling against you so that they can come to Jesus in repentance and faith and be spared from his wrath. And help us who belong to you to keep surrendering our lives to you, to keep believing in his coming kingdom, to keep proclaiming the good news of eternal life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Master. Amen.